Hello, this is Julian Gurdon from the English Department of St. Columbus College in Dublin, in Ireland. Look at our blog, sccenglish.ie, for more. This is the first of a series of five-minute talks called Ten Characters from Hamlet, which will not include the really important characters, such as Hamlet himself, since I plan to cover these in a later series of longer revision podcasts. Instead, here are some comments on people who tend to get less attention, but who are still important. Hamlet is an enormous bag of a play, far longer than, for instance, the very tightly written Macbeth, and there are a lot of characters who deserve our individual attention. One of these is a significant man who hardly appears at all, and hardly says anything at all. Fortinbras is the son of a king of Norway of the same name. He is mentioned briefly early on, when Horatio says he is of unimproved metal, hot and full, in other words, pretty impulsive. He passes rapidly over the stage in Act 4, Scene 4, and then returns right at the end of the play, when, much to his own surprise, one imagines, he finds himself King of Denmark, while all around him lie the littered corpses of the previous regime. So why is this apparently minor character interesting? For a start, he is one of four young men in the play who are attempting to revenge their fathers, that key theme in the whole story. Hamlet, of course, but also Laertes, whose father was killed by Hamlet, and Pyrrhus, the character described by the actor in Act 2, Scene 2, who slaughters King Priam in revenging his father, Achilles. Fortinbras's first really important function is when he leads his army across Denmark on the way to Poland. Hamlet sees this, and this act prompts Hamlet's final soliloquy. The captain tells Hamlet that Fortinbras is attacking a little patch of ground that hath in it no profit but the name. And when Hamlet says that, therefore, surely the Poles will never defend this, tells him that it is already garrisoned. The captain's words and Fortinbras's example prompt Hamlet into the final soliloquy of the play. How all occasions do inform against me, and spur my dull revenge. A speech in which he compares himself to his own detriment to this tender, delicate and tender prince, who, despite such tenderness, is willing to make mouths at the invisible event, exposing what is mortal and unsure to all that fortune, death and danger dare, even for an eggshell. It has been, up to now, the invisible event. In other words, what we don't know will happen, the unknown consequences of an act, that has held Hamlet back. And towards the end of the soliloquy he says that it is to my shame that he watches all these men going to their imminent death while he does nothing. It is this example which leads to Hamlet doing something that puzzles many viewers and students of the play. Just four lines before he dies, he says, I do prophesy the election lights on Fortinbras. He has my dying voice, without giving any reason for this. And when Fortinbras arrives, a few lines later, he says that the body of Hamlet should be borne like a soldier to the stage, for he was likely, had he been put on, to have proved most royal. And he has the final words of the play. Go, bid the soldiers shoot. 
Why does Hamlet pass the throne of Denmark onto this militaristic foreigner? He doesn't say, but his final soliloquy suggested that he feels that this corrupt, exhausted state needs the energy of a very different man to himself. Hello, this is Julian Gerdham from sccenglish.ie, the blog of the English Department of St. Columbus College in Dublin, Ireland. This is the second of a series of very brief podcasts on characters in Hamlet. Ten characters in Hamlet, not including the main ones. A couple of days ago, I did one on Fortinbras. And today, here is another on another of the young men of the play. Everyone has, or needs, or longs for, or once had, a best friend. And Hamlet, that most tortured and lonely of souls, also has one. A man who, amidst the betrayals and corruption of the Danish court at Elsinore, is steadfastly loyal. Horatio might seem to be one of the less interesting characters in this play. Much less interesting than Hamlet, of course, but also the distressed Ophelia, or the villainous Claudius. Decency is not always fascinating. But he does deserve our attention, because he is trusted so much by Hamlet. It's Horatio who breaks the astonishing news of what is haunting the battlements to Hamlet. It is Horatio who Hamlet entrusts with the facts of his father's death, when he asks him to observe Claudius at the play. It is Horatio to whom Hamlet returns from England, and who then accompanies him. And it is Horatio to whom Hamlet addresses his final words, and who speaks for him after his death. After that list, he shouldn't need any persuading of his importance. In some sense, Horatio is also important because, among the varied characters of this play, he is just particularly ordinary, rather like the rest of us. In Act 1, Scene 4, when Hamlet joins him on the battlements, he advises his friend not to follow the ghost, saying, Do not, my lord, what if it tempt you towards the flood, my lord, or to the dreadful summit of the cliff that beetles o'er his base into the sea, and there assume some other horrible form, which might deprive your sovereignty of reason, and draw you into madness? Think of it. Much later in the play, he again tries to stop his friend doing something dangerous. In Act 5, Scene 2, he is suspicious of the proposed fencing match. If your mind dislike anything, obey it. I will forestall their repair hither, and say you are not fit. Hamlet, however, declines this offer. He is ready. In other words, Horatio does what most sensible people would do in these situations. And it's just this moderate good sense which would make him a hopeless central subject for a tragedy, or indeed any other kind of play. You should have a good look at an important and most interesting moment in Act 3, Scene 2, just before the play is put on for the court. Hamlet tells Horatio that he is e'en as just a man as e'er my conversation coped with all. And when Horatio tries to interrupt to turn down this compliment, Hamlet then launches into a long description of the qualities which have made Horatio the man he most admires. Thou hast been as one in suffering all that suffers nothing, a man that fortunes, buffets and rewards has ta'en with equal thanks, 
and blessed are those whose blood and judgment are so well commeddled that they are not a pipe for fortune's finger to sound what stop she please. Give me that man that is not passion's slave, and I will wear him in my heart's core, I in my heart of heart as I do thee. And then he suddenly becomes almost embarrassed at being carried away. Something too much of this, he says, and turns his words to the coming play. Why has he got carried away? Because in passionately describing Horatio's qualities, he is giving a reverse portrait, a photographic negative, of what he himself is, passion's slave, buffeted by fortune, a pipe for fortune's finger. In Horatio, we see everything that Hamlet is not. Welcome to the third of a series of very short talks about characters in Hamlet. This is Julian Gerdham from sccenglish.ie, the English Department of St. Columbus College in Dublin in Ireland. As I said in the first of these talks, there are four young men in the play Hamlet who have to take revenge for their fathers. Hamlet, of course, but also Fortinbras and Pyrrhus, who takes his revenge on King Priam of Troy as recounted by an actor. The fourth character is the subject of this talk, Laertes. At the start of the play, it doesn't look like Laertes will take up much of our attention. In the second scene, he asks the king respectfully if he can return to France, now that the funeral and the marriage have both been completed. And in the third scene, we see him saying goodbye to his sister Ophelia, together with some big brotherly words of advice. And then he disappears from the play for a long time until Hamlet kills his father, and he returns in rage in Act 4 to take his revenge. Like Fortinbras and Horatio, in their very different ways, Laertes is useful for us as a foil for Hamlet. Seeing what Laertes is, especially as a revenger, clarifies aspects of Hamlet's situation and of his personality. Laertes' advice to his sister in Act 1, Scene 3 basically steer clear of Hamlet because you'll never have him for good, is not dissimilar to his own father's, which comes shortly afterwards. Laertes says, best safety lies in fear, and cautions Ophelia to be extremely cautious herself. Ophelia points out that he should make sure he follows his own advice. So it's ironic then that the next time we see him, he has thrown any kind of fear or caution out the window. Between these moments, the play is filled with the story of Hamlet's discovery of his father's murder and his hesitant, confused and slow movement towards revenge. And then he impulsively kills Polonius in the closet scene. Now things are more complicated. Hamlet is now not only a revenger of a father, but someone who revenge needs to be exercised on by a son of another father. Laertes returns at the end of Act 4. His arrival is described first by a messenger. The ocean, overpeering of his list, eats not the flats with more impiteous haste than young Laertes in a riotous head o'erbears your officers. The rabble call him Lord, and as the world were now but to begin, antiquity forgot, custom not known. And he adds, they cry, choose we, Laertes shall be king. 
a timeless image of the horror autocrats must feel when their people are out of control. And as I speak this, President Mubarak in Egypt must feel just the same. When Laertes himself enters, his first, first words on his own are, O thou vile king, give me my father. These words might seem refreshingly different. We've been waiting a long time for Hamlet to confront Claudius, and he still hasn't. Laertes goes on to say, I'll not be juggled with, to hell allegiance, vows to the profoundest pit, I dare damnation, and he seems to be about to kill the king. And this is where the example of Laertes is helpful. After all, there is one teensy-eensy little problem here. Laertes has the wrong man. Claudius may be a murderer, but he didn't murder Polonius. And then Claudius is easily able to deflect him. Imagine blowing up a balloon and holding it closed with your fingers, and then letting go. It fizzes a short distance and then quickly fizzles out, just like Laertes. Worse is to come. When Claudius proposes an underhand scheme to poison Hamlet, Laertes takes it a step further, revealing that he has already bought some poison from a dodgy poison dealer. And he tells Claudius that, unlike Hamlet, he would be prepared to cut his victim's throat in a church, and the king approves. Revenge should have no bounds. Oh yes, it should. Laertes then, by leaping in Ophelia's grave, prompts Hamlet's declaration, This is I. Hamlet the Dane, and in the end he shows his essential decency, which has been skewed by his father's and sister's deaths, and Hamlet makes his peace with him. Whatever revenge is, it is never easy or straightforward, as the example of Laertes shows us. Hello and welcome to another sccenglish.ie audio boo. This is Julian Gerdham from St Columbus College in Dublin in Ireland with the fourth talk on relatively minor characters in the play Hamlet. And this one deals with the fourth and the fifth characters. That might be cheating slightly, but this particular pair can only be thought of together. They are, of course, Hamlet's so-called friends, Rosencrantz and Gentle Guildenstern, or perhaps rather, Guildenstern and a gentle Rosencrantz. They're certainly minor characters, but they do make a habit of popping up at important moments and, imp and important scenes. It's quite easy for them to become a comic duo, a kind of Shakespearean Laurel and Hardy or Abbott and Costello, in the way done in the excellent current National Theatre production starring Rory Kinnear. But these characters do also usefully underscore some key ideas, especially about Claudius's court. They first appear well into the play, in Act 2, Scene 2, when they are summoned by the king because he is deeply concerned with Hamlet's transformation. Basically, he asks them to spy on his own stepson, and then the queen echoes this. And with syrupy sycophancy, they agree to take this on. Guildenstern says... We both obey, and here give up ourselves in the full bent to lay our service freely at your feet to be commanded. This is their key note. Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are like too many other members of Claudius's court, such as Polonius and Osric. They are yes-men. In the words of J. Alfred Prufrock in T.S. Eliot's poem, they are an easy tool, deferential, glad to be of use. 
So they go to talk to Hamlet. At first he is delighted to see them, but fairly quickly realises they have an ulterior motive. Later, in Act 2, Scene 2, they also hear important words from Hamlet, when he says that he has lost all his mirth, and that this goodly frame, the earth, is to him but a foul and pestilent congregation of vapours, while man is a mere quintessence of dust. These words are consistent with what he has said privately in his soliloquies. What he is leaving out in public is his knowledge of his father's murder. In Act 3, Scene 3, we also hear something very useful, this time from Rosencrantz. Not surprisingly, he means his words about the singular and peculiar life of the king as pure sycophancy. But his speech early in that scene is one of the most useful in all Shakespeare's works in showing the centrality of the king in society and why the cess of majesty can be so catastrophic and it's worth paying plenty of attention to it. By Act 4, Scene 2, following Polonius's death, Hamlet is treating the pair with disdain. He calls Rosencrantz a sponge that soaks up the king's countenance, his rewards, his authorities, and warns his former friends that they will eventually be spat out, a warning that, unfortunately, for their own sake, they pay no heed to. And so they get into a ship, taking Hamlet to England, unwittingly carrying the prince's death sentence. And that's the last we see of them. Not quite the last we hear of them, however. Hamlet's trickery condemns them to death, and the ever-decent Horatio, probably shocked, says, So Guildenstern and Rosencrantz go to it, which Hamlet receives with an uncaring, Why, man, they did make love to this employment. They are not near my conscience. And then, after the deaths of Hamlet, Gertrude, Laertes and Claudius in the final scene, we're just about to wrap up when the English ambassador turns up, admitting that, our affairs from England come too late to tell the king that Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead, a line famously chosen by Tom Stoppard as the title of one of his plays. It's impossible to imagine anyone in the audience feeling sorry for them. They get swept up in Hamlet's revenge, examples of the rottenness that Marcellus said pervaded the state of Denmark. Hello, this is Julian Gerdham from St. Columbus College in Dublin in Ireland. Look at our blog sccenglish.ie for lots more. This is the latest in a series of short podcasts on relatively minor characters in the play Hamlet. Today, Polonius. One of the best known lines in the play Hamlet is by one of the least important characters, Marcellus, who in Act 1, Scene 4 states, Something is rotten in the state of Denmark. He says this after witnessing the former king haunting the battlements of Elsinore Castle in a state of considerable agitation, so it'd have to be rather imperceptive not to realise this. The idea of rottenness or corruption or rankness pervades the early part of the play, and it's not long before, as an audience, that we realise where it comes from. At the heart of the Danish state is a regicidal, fratricidal king, it doesn't come more rotten than murdering the previous king, who happens to be your own brother. However, this sense of rottenness is not confined to one man. As Rosencrantz says to Claudius, the king is always that spirit upon whose wheel depend and rest the lives of many, 
and never alone did the king sigh, but with a general groan. In other words, the king's influence, for good or bad, inevitably spreads everywhere. An idea Shakespeare keeps coming back to, especially in those other great tragedies, Macbeth and King Lear. So it is no surprise to find that Claudius has a court reflecting his own personality, or that almost everyone in it is eager to please him. That is the nature of abuse of power. And it comes also as no surprise at all to find that his right-hand man is hardly a model of independence. The portrayal of Polonius over the years has changed. Formerly, in criticism and performance, he tended to be regarded as a funny, harmless, bumbling old fool. More recently, the tendency is to portray him as more sinister, a fellow traveller with Claudius, all too eager to go along with this rotten king, a kind of forerunner to a KGB or Stasi chief. Polonius says very little in the first court scene, Act 1, Scene 2. This is not a man who will put his head above the parapet. And we first see him properly in Act 1, Scene 3, when he says goodbye to his son Laertes as he travels to Paris, and gives some homespun advice to his daughter Ophelia. This includes the famous speech, These few precepts in thy memory look thou character, including frequently quoted maxims such as The apparel oft proclaims the man, and neither a borrower nor lender be. Out of context, these may seem to add up to wise advice on life, but they can also be seen as a programme of caution, a carefulness by a man who is not prepared to have his daughter's relationship with the Prince of Denmark jeopardise his own position. In other words, they can be seen cynically. This view seems justified when in Act 2, Scene 1, we see Polonius sending off his flunky Reynaldo to spy on Laertes, his own son. Or is this perhaps just over-anxious parenting? One scene later, however, Polonius offers up his daughter, Ophelia, as a kind of bait to trap Hamlet. At such a time, I loose my daughter to him. He is now getting into deep waters. Hamlet runs rings around him later in the scene, mocking him. Puffed up with self-importance and eagerness to please the boss, Polonius produces a disastrous plan. His killing by Hamlet while hiding, in Act 3, Scene 4, the so-called closet scene, evokes little horror or concern by Hamlet, and Claudius's only concern is for his own future. He becomes useful only as a butt for some black humour. This counsellor is now most still, most secret and most grave, who was in life a foolish prating knave, and he is forgotten about for the rest of the story. Hamlet's words about Rosencrantz and Guildenstern might well suit Polonius too. He came fatally between the pass and fell in censored points of mighty opposites.